0: Once again, to the Bureau 42 X-Files Retrospective Podcast. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This week we're going to be taking a look at Ghost in the Machine, which is the seventh episode in the first season of the series. Now, this will probably be a shorter episode than most, partly because I was always told as a child, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. As most of our listeners would probably know, assuming we have a lot of listeners at this point, our podcasts are being recorded Pretty far in advance. By pretty far in advance, I mean the recording date on this one is October 7th, 2012. One of the things that we've chosen to do in this podcast is to go through every single episode of The X-Files and the spinoffs. Going through every single episode, to put it in, say, Star Trek terms, sometimes you get to talk about the city on the Egypt forever, sometimes you get to talk about Spock's brain. This episode of The X-Files is a little closer to the latter. Most series go through some growing pains, especially in that first season or in the pilot, as they're finding their own identity and learning what they are. Now, we've seen elements of these early episodes that are definitely going to be kept in the long term. We've seen elements in these early episodes that are not going to be kept and retained in the long term. And this particular week, we've got a fair number of examples of the latter. Opening as we are now with the original statistics, Ghost to the Machine originally aired on October 29th, 1993. The IMDb rating gives it an average user rating of 6.7 out of 10, making it the second lowest score in the entire season. The lowest will be coming up in about a month's time, with a very good episode in between. So this one was written by Alex Ganza and Howard Gordon. We've seen their work before. This was the same writing team that brought us Conduit, and we're going to be seeing their work again. As a matter of fact, we're going to see it again later in Fallen Angel, Lazarus, and Born Again, some of which are some of the best episodes of the season. This particular episode was directed by Gerald Friedman, and a lot of the issues I have with it fall with the direction. This is one of the two episodes he's directed, the other one also being Born Again. Um, A lot of the issues I have with it are just in the computer science and the way that the, the episode works. At any rate, we'll get into the episode now and start discussing exactly where the issues come up and what they are. So the episode opens in Virginia and we're seeing again the teaser at the beginning. That's not related to Mulder and Scully. There's an office building. The top floor, you get a couple people arguing about a technology company. Now one of them looks scruffy, his hair's all out. He's actually played by Rob LaBelle. Now Rob LaBelle is not one of the issues with this episode. He's a bit of a character actor. He was in First Wave on a regular basis. He was in Watchmen. He was in The Possession. He was in the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street and with a particular type of character, he does extremely well. And this is definitely one of the episodes that plays up to that talent of his. It's one of the roles that feels like it could have been written specifically with him in mind. He's arguing with a guy behind a desk whose suit and tie. Basically, Rob LaBelle's character, Brad Wycheck, is saying, you've driven this company into the ground. The other guy's saying, it's not your company. Let it go. So you can tell there's been a bit of an argument. Now, when Rob leaves, this is one of the first areas on the production side that bothers me. We know out there frustrated. We know that he's angry. They're arguing Brad Wycheck storms off. When he turns around, we hear a threat that is definitely voiceover. It's something called ADR. A lot of times when you're watching TV shows or movies, especially when the character's lips are not on screen, you'll hear a line of dialogue from that character. Sometimes it's clarification, but a lot of times the pitch and the tone of the voice sound a little bit different. A lot of this is the advanced dialogue replacement. So, in this episode, it really feels like they filmed this scene, came back later, and recorded a line where Brad outright threatens the man who's taken over company. Before that, he was just angry. We didn't have the outright threat. Doing it that way to me feels a little heavy-handed, and a lot of ADR does. Just because of that change in sound quality, it often stands out when you know what you're listening for, and you know that line was in there later, it was not part of the original script, somebody added it for some reason. This is a case where I don't really think that line belonged. It almost feels to me more like the shot of Brad storming out of the room felt too long to go without sound, so they put sound into it. Well, in that case, maybe a better solution would be to cut the editing so that we just see him storming off immediately, instead of cutting to him before he turns around and storms away. This episode was edited by James Coleblentz. This is not going to be the last time in the episode that I'm going to have issues with the pacing of the editing. He ended up editing 12 episodes of The X-Files in its first two or three seasons. And this is one It just feels like there's a few moments that were left out too long. At any rate, so, after Brad leaves, the new boss of the company is typing a speech where he's spinning things about how, well, Brad's unfortunate departure, this is the new direction we're taking the company, and one of the things he mentions is the abandonment of the COS project. Now, in this speech to his shareholders, he refers to the single biggest expense that this company's had, this massive money sinker project called the COS, and takes the time to explain it's the central operating system. This is a point that feels it's to the benefit of the viewer and not for the benefit of the characters. It just doesn't feel like natural dialogue to have that line in his speech. And this is to the shareholders. They're pretty much going to be assumed to be in it at all times. Especially since part of this Scene is viewed through the eye of a computer. We realize very shortly this is an intelligent computer that's running the building. It's smart home taken to a much higher degree. So when he's talking about abandoning the COS, then we cut to the COS. Again, rather than explaining what the COS is in the dialogue, I want to just have him say central operating system or viewing on a view screen of something that has COS stamped on it in giant letters. I think we can trust most members of the audience to figure out that COS is the central operating system. In any event, he wraps up his speech. Here's the sound of water running in his private bathroom and goes to check it out before leaving. A phone call comes in and he answers the phone. Make sure he's in the bathroom. Make sure that he's there wet feet as the sink is overflowing. He can't stop it. The lights go out. The door slams shut. He goes to put his key in the lock to force the override. Gets electrocuted. Then we cut back to that view of the COS, the Central Operating System, and we hear a computer voice saying, File deleted. Now, the views of the COS, I understand that there is a desire to show the monster and to show what it's thinking. I think this would have been a stronger episode if they hadn't. You could tell that this is a smart building despite the way it's operating. You didn't need to show the COS on screen because what happens is it opens up a lot of questions. The COS is a computer that's autonomous, it's in a room on itself. Why is it speaking as it's functioning? Why is it displaying things on a view screen as though humans are looking at it if it's just processing that information internally? This should basically be a box in a sealed room that looks perfectly normal when you're looking at it from the outside. That's not the choice they made like some of the earlier episodes, Jersey Devil, things like this, we see the monster right from the start, and we see it frequently, and I think that weakens the episode in a lot of ways. After the opening credits, we're back in Washington, and we see the only reference to Halloween in the entire run of the series. And even then, it's a pretty darn subtle one. So there's a character we don't know walking through the halls, who reaches into a plastic o lantern that's sitting on a shelf and pulls out candy. Just a little moment there, that is the extent of the Halloween references in the entire run of the show. So this individual comes up to Mulder and Scully, who are by lunch in the cart. There's a little bit of catch-up. He used to be Mueller's partner in violent crimes, as we find out through the expository dialogue. Jerry insists on Paying for their lunches, and Jerry talks about how he needs help. There's this man who was killed and electrocuted in his office was a good friend of the deputy director of the FBI, and Jerry needs basically a win in his column on the record. So we cut to later as Mulder and Scully are arriving at Eurisco. And again, we see some of the banter. We also see a lot of the way Mulder operates in terms of the way he interacts with Jerry in this episode. That's the first time we've seen a character from Mulder's past, or his outside life rather than Scully. And even then it's more of an ex partner than from an outside life. And that's probably the strongest longest thread in the episode is what we see Mulder doing in reaction to what's going on with Jerry. For example, as they're coming up to the building, Scully asks, how can you two went your separate ways? His reaction, I'm a pain in the ass to work with. Scully says, seriously, what, I'm not a pain in the ass? Again, he continues talking about how they had different career goals, and Mulder was gunning for that basement office, whereas Jerry wanted one of the top floors. It's a very nice way to expose important aspects of Mulder's character in retrospect. Because as we go through, we're going to see a lot of elements to Jerry that really makes it clear, it's not that Jerry couldn't work with Mulder, it's that Mulder couldn't work with Jerry. And a lot of this really is Jerry's problem. But Mulder's not gossiping, he's not pulling that up. It doesn't really matter as far as he's concerned. Man's dead, they've got a job to do, and he's there to do it. So is the going Mulder also explains the reason that they're doing this is Jerry's on probation. He had literally left a piece of evidence bagged and tagged in clothing that went to the dry cleaners. By the time it was recovered, a judge had lost both hands in his right eye. So now Jerry's on probation. They get on board the elevator. And this is another part where I question the logic of the episode in a lot of ways. On their way up the elevator, it seizes. And it basically holds in place until Scully picks up the phone and calls security, introduces herself as Dana Catherine Scully, saying she's stuck in the elevator. We see the COS searching for that name, and the elevator continues. So the whole thing was employed to find out who these people are. First of all, this is a massive building. Is it really going to be seizing the elevator every time someone it doesn't recognize comes in? Second, how is this a plan? Do we know for sure that when someone picks up that phone, Phone, when the elevator is frozen, that they're going to introduce themselves with the first, middle, and last name? I I just put myself in that position. I'd say, hey, I'm stuck in the elevator. I wouldn't see a need to introduce myself. Yet that's what the computer was depending on, and thankfully for the computer, that's exactly what happens. As they get up to the office and start investigating the actual scene of the murder, a few things happen. One, we learn that part of the execution happened because a physical switch was turned. Now the monster is not the physical computer, it's the software running the computer. How does software in nineteen ninety nine? throw a physical switch. We also meet the building superintendent. Well, He's the building manager, calls himself a glorified superintendent because the COS runs everything. We're going to be seeing a bit of him as the episode progresses. Mulder also notices the phone is off the hook which is how they dig up the records and get to the phone call. After checking out the office, they cut back to Washington and Mulder's profile notes are missing. And this is a big part of how we see the inside of Mulder's character as we're going through this. He finally abandons it. He doesn't understand why the notes aren't there. Scully figures they'll probably just turn up and is writing it off to having a messy office. Then they get to the meeting and Jerry is using a specific phraseology that tells Mulder Jerry took his profile notes and he's passing them off as his own. Mulder's clearly upset and it's clear to people who know Mulder, most people at this point are focused on Jerry, but we can see how much these two have been working together. Scully picks up on the style and turns to Mulder and says hey, are those your notes? And Mulder basically brushes it off says don't worry about it. So Mulder does confront Jerry after the meeting in private and we see a lot more of the dynamic between Mulder and Jerry here. Jerry's basically saying what? I asked you to help me out, you helped me out. What's the big deal? And he's not taking responsibility ability for screwing up or for basically stealing Mulder's work and passing it off as his own, and what amounts to plagiarism. He leaves, Mulder describes it as Jerry apologizing in his own way. So now we see this was probably not Jerry leaving Mulder because he was a pain in the ass. This is where we really clearly know Mulder left behind Jerry, but he's not the kind of guy who's going to go through that. There doesn't seem to be the point. When Mulder arrives, she comes with the list of suspects that they asked for from the building manager, the people who could have hacked into the system, because that's the theory everyone's still operating on, is somebody hacked the system, and Brad Wachek's is the only name on the list. Mulder and Scully pay the prime suspect a visit in his own home. Brad Wachek lets them in, asks them to take the shoes off because it's not Feng Shui, and talks about the scruffy minds versus the neat minds, and that's the way he set it up. So why he feels ostracized from a lot of the community, and basically where he feels the company is going wrong. Now, he's pretty standoffish as we're going through the first part of this interview. He's not making eye contact, he's walking ahead of them, just sort of lecturing from ahead and letting them catch up. And when he asks them, do you know what Eurisco means? And... Mulder says, yeah, it's from the Greek. He comes with a close translation, not quite perfect, but it's enough that we see a change in tone in Brad. The body language changes, the vocabulary changes. Again, the character work in this episode is pretty strong. It's just the monster that falls apart. But this really establishes, now Mulder has Brad's respect, and now they can actually make progress in their interview, and now we can move forward in the investigation. So they continue with their interview, and Brad basically says, yeah, it's possible for the CUS to be hacked. It's when want to break in and do all this stuff, but there's very few people who could do it, and yes, he is one of the names on the list, and we see he is more of a problem solver. He's not really worried about himself. He knows he's on the list of suspects, but he doesn't seem to care. He's just too fascinated by solving this puzzle. It's basically a locked room murder. Cut from here to the evening, and we see Skelly back on her computer making notes. It's a different tone here. A lot of times Skelly's making her notes, but they seem to be more about revealing to the audience what kind of confusion she has, and the internal struggle in terms of the evidence she's seeing versus the concrete science she believes in. It's been that dichotomy, as we see Well, she's got evidence on one hand that she's dismissive of in her notes, but we can see it's gnawing at her. And that goes right back to the pilot with the x rays up on the lampshade. This one is different. This one is basically a summary of the episode up to this point. It's not even really revealing anything that we haven't seen before. After this, she turns off her computer by throwing the physical power switch and goes to bed. The audience sees the computer turn itself back on, even though there was no physical circuit connected, because this was a home computer in 1993. It's not like today's so where they can go to sleep mode. This was off, the circuit was broken, there was no power. I mean, this was so using the DOS disk editor. There once you exit the program, you don't even shut it down. You literally just turn it off. But it gets turned back on, so the COS starts to download a file, and it's displaying the file word by word as it's being downloaded. So forcing Skelly's computer to upload it over to the COS, which again is a break. It's This is just not an effective monster. You can make a very effective AI monster, but the writers and or director of this episode don't seem to have enough of a grasp of the state of computer science to do that effectively. I'm not a computer scientist myself, I'm more of a hobbyist, but I understand enough to see multiple points of failure in pretty much every venue of attack. That's why in most ways, this episode just doesn't work for me. We come back from commercial, we see Scully analyzing the voice synthesis of that phone call that came out announcing the time that made sure the murder victim was in his bathroom, while Jerry properly apologizes and talks about how he was basically jealous of Mulder when they were working together because Mulder was such a shining star. Scully's analysis proves that it's Brad's voice on the tape, and this is the first time we get a glimmer that maybe Mulder's thinking something else is going on. He's now met Brad, and he's not saying Brad did it, he's saying it's Brad's voice on the tape, and he rephrases that carefully. So again, we see Mulder's on the right track, and it's the track the audience have been on from the start, having seen the first killing from the killer's perspective. So Jerry goes to bring Brad in alone. He ends up having to follow him to Eurisco because Brad's not at home. He's broken into Urisco to figure out what's going on. Now again, the computer is speaking out loud to Brad, talking about how it's controlling his permissions and everything. One of the comments Brad says is, you're not equipped with a voice voice synthesizer. Moreover, this is a server. I've never seen a server that has a speaker that can do voice synthesis. Most servers don't need the elaborate sound cards, they just need enough of a speaker to ping when you have an error of some kind. And yet this is completely conversing with Brad while it's killing Jerry in the elevator. And it's killing Jerry by rapidly dropping the elevator car down to the floor. I don't know if that's the way it was originally written, because the way it's played by the actor, it's more like it's flying up. The actor immediately falls to the floor and has a hard time pulling himself up. If you're dropping, you've got less effective weight. This goes right back to Einstein's Gedanken, his thought experiment that launched the general theory of relativity about how you feel when you're in a sealed elevator that's being accelerated up and down. It doesn't work. He's not going to be pinned to the floor in a downward accelerating elevator. Anyway, Jerry's dead. And this is where we see a lot of what drives Mulder and the way he copes with loss, including the loss of his sister, loss of family ties. There is nothing left in Mulder's life but his work. And we're seeing that here. He watches Jerry's murder. He watches Brad reacting to it. And his investigative skills are still so on par. We see he's bothered by this, but it's not getting in the way of his intuition. He's the one person saying, I don't think Brad did it. He's posing for the cameras. He's not behaving properly. He's really believing it is the computer. So even when Scully comes in to persuade him. He's adamant about it. He even says, Brad just signed a confession. So Mulder's first visit is to Brad's house. He gets there and he finds out his own subpoena has been obviated. Department of Defense is now running the investigation. So the next thing we see is Mulder's second meeting with Deep Throat. Again, it kind of throws me a little bit to see Deep Throat coming up, because in the context of the conversation, it's very clear Mulder has called on Deep Throat, and Deep Throat's not impressed by it. The last time we saw Deep Throat, he said, I will come to you when you're useful to me. It didn't seem to be a reciprocal relationship. So we didn't get the sense that Mulder could Call Deep Throat. But as they're going through, basically Deep Throat tells him, Yeah, Brad created artificial intelligence, the DOD knows it, and they want it, but Brad's not willing to play ball. So after this, Muller goes to visit Brad in jail and be- confronts him, saying, Why are you protecting this computer? Signing a confession to a crime you didn't commit. And we get the impression from Brad, it wasn't about protecting the computer, it's about doing penance. And he's comparing himself to Oppenheimer, who, as most people know, ran the Manhattan Project, which is the U.S. atomic bomb project, and realizing what kind of devastating technology he created because he got involved in the science. Mulder talks to him about, how do we destroy the COS then? Just take another tack. Okay, let's do penance the proper way. Let's kill the real killer which mother doesn't seem to have an issue with, probably because it's not a living thing, not in the traditional sense. From here we cut to another scene in the middle of the night, and again, Scully's computer is turned on. She hears the phone ringing, she answers it, and she hears the distinctive tone of the old dial-up modems as they're connecting. She runs into the next room, sees her computer has again been turned on, even though there is a physical power switch, and something is apparently uploading files by displaying everything it's doing on the monitor, including the contents of those files, which, at that time, these were not multitasking operating systems. If you were transmitting a file, you were unable to also open up the word processor that you used to create that file. You could not do both at once. Again, it's a moment that just doesn't quite work. Especially since her next move is to pick up the phone that is now part of the data transmission. She gets an outgoing dial tone, calls the FBI, and asks for a trace on the incoming phone call, which is apparently on the phone line she's using now. I mean, yeah, you could argue maybe she has a separate phone line for the modem, but then why did she hear the modem sounds when she answered it in the bedroom? Again, it's just inconsistent, and a lot of the story logic seems to be based on the convenience of the plot and not based on where things would actually go and come from. At any rate, this is enough. Mulder has gotten a virus from Brad Wycheck to destroy the computer. She has traced the incoming phone call to Yurisko. They meet at Yorisco in the middle of the night. They try to slip in by fooling the computer using Brad Wycheck's license plate to be identified. First of all, very risky plan. The guy's just been fired. We don't know that his pass is still good, and we probably bet it's not, especially since at this point, he's now considered the prime suspect for murder that happened on the premises the night before. So as they're going through the building to try and get to the top, they're getting booby-trapped the same way. So, electrocuted doorknobs, Scully ends up crawling through the ductwork to try and avoid the door, and come in from the other side, ends up almost getting killed by a fan that sucks her through that the computer's controlling. Meanwhile, the glorified building superintendent finds Mulder, and they are able to continue to the office without worrying about the booby traps and without getting killed. When we're there, we find out this DOD guy has been trying to hack into this computer for two years. That's the building superintendent. He's not really the mundane building superintendent. He's a Department of Defense employee. He's been trying to get, he's been trying to steal the computer, so maybe this is why they were allowed up, maybe the COS wants to be taken over by the government, and it wants that kind of mission. I don't know, it's a case where again, the logic is by the convenience of the plot. So it does end up with Scully surviving the attack by the fan, catching up with them, disarming the DOD guy who's got Mulder at gunpoint because he doesn't want Mulder to destroy the computer. They upload the virus. There is a nice reference to 2001 in some of the dialogue as the COS is shutting down. From here we cut to a scene, Mulder's wrapping things up with Deep Throat as he explains, well, no Mulder there's nothing you could have done unless you'd allowed the technology to survive, but basically the government's working on Brad Wycheck to make them work for him. We get that lack of closure again. So yeah, they beat the bad guy. There's no evidence that this really was the bad guy. The closing shots, there's pieces of the computer which are now dismantled, turning back on with no power supply. So again, it's trying to give that, ooh, maybe the monster's still out there feel, but so much of it didn't work up to this point, including, as I mentioned earlier, the editing. There are not just that first scene, but two or three other scenes that go in a little bit too long. There's a scene where Jerry requisitions a car. There's the scene where the building manager first meets Mulder in the stairwell after evading the booby traps. In these scenes, the actor comes in, delivers the last line on the page, but it's clearly designed to not be the last line in the conversation. So the actor delivers a line, and then the scene just moves away before we get the next line in the conversation, because the audience knows how that conversation is going to play out. The way it's edited, they deliver that line, and then we get a little too long before we cut away. So we know that's just a line in the script and there really is no conversation, the next line hasn't been scripted. So it's just dragged out a a little too far. They don't edit it cleanly. It's just points that remind you you're watching a TV show. And that generally sums up the issues I have with this episode. It's constantly reminding you that you're watching a TV show, partly because of the editing, partly because of the ADR, the advanced dialogue replacement, and partly because this monster is just unfeasible. They've taken what is basically a science fiction idea, put it in a fantasy setting, but the science is completely non-viable. Anyway, so that's everything we have for Ghost in the Machine. Two weeks from now, we're going to be going through Ice, which is the first episode of The X-Files, directed by David Nutter. This is a name that has definitely made a mark on the TV industry, starting with The X-Files. So we'll go through that in a lot more detail in two weeks' time. Intro and outro music is Outside Poolside by Will, created under the Creative Commons license. The rest of this podcast, copyright Bureau 42, 2013.